Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Now, coming up in just a moment, once again, the CDC is changing its recommendations regarding masking guidance. We'll get an update on Georgia and COVID-19 when WABE health reporter Sam Whitehead joins the program. Also, the state's medical marijuana board awards six manufacturing licenses. Here's a question. How long will it take for Georgians to benefit? Plus, DeKalb County Sheriff Melly Maddox joins me. We'll talk about a summer program teaching boys early career skills and etiquette. Conversations important to the community, that's on today's Closer Look. But first, this. As mentioned, the CDC is changing masking guidance. Now the Gwinnett County school system will change its mask policy in response to some other new guidelines from the CDC. Now, face coverings were optional but strongly encouraged in the district, but now will be required for students, staff, and visitors regardless of vaccination status. And the change in policy matches new CDC recommendations, which say everyone in schools should wear face coverings indoors, vaccinated or not. Gwinnett joins APS, DeKalb, and Clayton counties in requiring face coverings. At this point, they're still optional in Fulton, Cobb, and the Marietta City Schools. Meanwhile, Georgia's COVID cases are spiking with about 4,000 new cases recorded just yesterday. And we'll have more about all of this in just a moment. But finally, this. Oh, hi, guys. I'm so happy to be here. I don't have no words to say. Sorry. Uh, Like kids at summer camp, that is Falcons defensive tackle Jacob Tuauti Mariner. Now, players have started arriving at the team's training facility in Flowery Branch. The team's first full squad workout under new head coach Arthur Smith is tomorrow. And the preseason opener is on August 13th against the Tennessee Titans at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I don't know if Kanye will still be there or not, but who knows. Uh, The season begins September 12th when the Philadelphia Eagles come to town. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu.
And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a quote just yesterday from Dr. Anthony Fauci. Quote, the science didn't change. The virus did. Close quote. As the CDC is now recommending fully vaccinated people begin wearing masks indoors again in what they consider places with high COVID transmission rates. Joining me now is WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. Thanks for taking this time, Sam, as always. Hey, Rose. Well, here we go again, Sam. Another change from the CDC. Let's get some clarity for our listeners. What's the latest now masking guidance from the CDC? Well, the CDC now says that vaccinated people need to wear masks in public in indoor settings. This is in areas with lots of spread of COVID-19. The idea is that the CDC wants to slow the spread of Delta and protect more people from getting infected. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned earlier that schools also have some new guidance. The CDC says all people in schools need to wear masks. It means kids, teachers, staff, visitors. And again, this is regardless of vaccination status. And Sam, there was a press briefing yesterday. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the CDC, is speaking there. Did she talk about why this reversal was coming now? I think was really interesting, Rose. The CDC previously, and I think a lot of public health officials, were under the impression that if you were fully vaccinated, you are not really going to spread the virus to other people. Um, and what Dr. Walensky said yesterday is that there has been some new evidence that shows that people who are vaccinated, who happen to get a break with this particular variant Delta, are actually capable of spreading the virus to other people. Um, and that really seems to be the main reason behind CDC's move here. If you are fully vaccinated, There is evidence that you could still get other people sick, even if your risk of severe disease from Delta is still relatively low. And so, Sam, in a sense, it's to really protect those who are not vaccinated. I think that's part of it. Yeah, Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that's that that's fair to say. The other part of this, too, though, is it's important to know that each time a virus infects someone new, especially an RNA virus, which is what we're dealing with here, it essentially pulls the genetic slot machine and has the potential to mutate. Right. It's this Delta variant that's so scary that we're dealing with now. This is one of these mutations. And Dr. Walensky said yesterday that we could be just a few mutations away from a virus that's even scarier. Delta right now, scenes are pretty good at protecting against it, but said that she's worried that we could just be essentially really close from a mutation that could potentially evade one of our vaccines, and and, and that would be a very bad situation. And so, Sam, the suggestion, of course, now to wear a mask indoors in public, if you are in an area of, quote, substantial or high transmission, how can folks determine whether or not they're in a high level of transmission in their area? Um, I would say if they're listening to us, um, they're at a high level of transmission. Oh, thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, just to just to be clear. Sure. So this is something that the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention tracks on their uh, COVID data page. They slice and dice the information in a lot of different ways. Um, but they essentially rank each county in the country by its level of risk. Um, and then it color codes it. But the state is either under high or substantial risk. And if we want to look across the country, some 46% of counties in the U.S. are at a high level of risk. So, mm-hmm. you know, one in two persons or one in two counties nearly in, in, in the country is at that level. 
And so has the State Department of Public Health responded to this latest recommendation? Uh, anything from Governor Kemp? You know, Rose, I reached out to both uh, the Department of Public Health and the governor's office. I have not received a response from them. Um, a notable change happened to DPH website. Um, they uh, had previously, when CDC changed their recommendation to say that people didn't need masks, uh, the Department of Public Health very notably uh, put that up on their uh, on their webpage, and that has now been removed. So that is kind of a, a small visible change hmm. um, that we have seen at this point, but nothing really definitive from DPH. And Sam, the states right now, the state's fully vaccination rate, where does it compare to others? Yeah, so in Georgia, we've got about 40% of residents fully vaccinated. This is compared to about 49% nationally. And we're seeing what we've seen through most of the vaccine rollout. The South is mm -hmm. falling behind the rest of the country still. Uh, we have seen some Mountain West states, namely Wyoming and Idaho, uh, kind of joining in with the South and its low vaccination status. And this is why this matters, Rose. The CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, not too long ago, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. Most of the people who are hospitalized across the right now are people who are not vaccinated. Patient coverage rates uh, in states across the South, and like I said, a few states in the Mountain West, do And Sam, are, so we're, I guess it's safe to say rural parts of Georgia still the region with the lowest vaccination rates throughout the state? I would say state data, you are seeing better vaccination coverage. Um, in metro Atlanta and around cities, less in places like south and southeast Georgia. And again, this is something that we've seen over the course of the rollout. We've had state public health officials express on multiple occasions the challenges that they face when it comes to getting rural populations interested in vaccination mm -hmm. um, and actually getting shots in arms. So that's, that's something that we're still dealing with today. Sam, some news from Emory University now mandating that the COVID-19 vaccine that to include faculty and staff, a trend we're starting to see now with a lot of employers. Yeah, and we actually just heard on the NPR newscast, there's been some reporting from NPR and CNN that the Biden administration is considering some kind of federal vaccination mandate or at least proof of vaccination for federal employees. So, you know, it's been up until this point with the vaccination rollout process. I think the approach has been we need to give people incentives. We need to give people carrots to get vaccinated. Those carrots aren't working, right? And yeah. so I think there's an understanding from, um, you know, some business leaders and even politicians that, you know, we have to, this has to be something that actually has to be a requirement um, if we want to get these vaccination numbers up. Sam, health experts have been warning about new variants down the line, and they all keep saying the same thing. It does depend on how the nation and the world, for that matter, responds. Is that what we're just going to keep dealing with probably throughout the rest of the year, through your lens here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like I said earlier, Rose, each time one of these viruses infects someone new, there's a chance for it to mutate. And that whether that infection happens here in the U.S., or somewhere else in the world, right? We're talking about the Delta variant. This is a variant that was first detected in India and really took off there and had a really devastating impact. And mm -hmm. so 
you know, we might like to think that the U.S. is isolated and a variant in some other part of the world is not going to impact the situation here. But what we're dealing with is kind of a stark reminder that that's not the case. Mm. WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands, as always, joining us with the latest information regarding Georgia and COVID-19. Sam, we really appreciate you taking the time. Good information. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Summer break is coming to an end for many area students. However, for some young males in DeKalb County, they participated in a unique program. The DeKalb County Sheriff's Office launched its first ever Boys to Men summer camp. So far, two classes have graduated from the Boys to Young Men. The program teaches camp attendees all kinds of stuff, life skills, and so much more. DeKalb County Sheriff Melanie Maddox joins me now to talk about the inspiration and the importance and the camp success as well as leading the sheriff's office amid against again all this other stuff, the pandemic. Sheriff, welcome. Good to see you again. Thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to be here. And, you know, unfortunately, you will probably be our last live in-studio guest because we have to make sure that we're keeping people safe, too. What do you make of all this with the pandemic again? Well, you know, one thing about it, we do want to make sure that everybody is is safe, and I understand that. And we're going to continue to um, take the preventive measures. Even at the DeKalb County Jail, we've already, um, you know, upgraded, should I say, and uh, more intense Uh, of safety measures. We've already had measures in place and we thought we were slowly coming out of this pandemic. But unfortunately, we see that this Delta variant has now has been exposed. So once again, we're back at uh, the strict measures that we had in place prior to. And it's safe to say for me that as of today, now unless I go back to the office and there's something different, Mm -hmm. but for the past three, almost four months, out of 1560 inmates, we do not have one with COVID. Not of one have succumbed to COVID. Neither did one was was one hospitalized for COVID, which means we've done an outstanding job. We're keeping this thing at bay in the facility. And what about your officers and personnel and staff? Are you encouraging them? hinting that maybe they should get the vaccine? I don't know if you all can mandate it. Yes, we do not mandate it, but we do encourage them. And we try to put some sort of incentives in place for them to get um, uh, vaccinated. And we offer it on site. So it's not like they have to go anywhere Mm -hmm. to get this vaccine. They can get it right there. And I was one of the first ones to get it done because I lead by example as the sheriff. So I wanted them to see and several of them did say, well, sheriff, when I saw you get it, I'm going to, you know, I decided to go get it. And it's important to know that with this Delta variant coming up, it is it's really um, taking a toll. And what we have found with the numbers is that a lot of them are succumbing to a bit, the ones that have not been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Well, let's begin uh, getting into what you all have been doing um, this summer. And it's, it's such an important program. And I was doing some research, Sheriff, and I, I went back to the recent statistics regarding our nation's youth. And in 2019... 696, 620,000 children were arrested. Right now, that leads to about 1,900 children are arrested each day in the U.S. I know this is not lost on you. When you hear those statistics, what goes through your mind? Um, you, know, you know what? As a grandmother, you, you know, to um, four, well, three, let me say this, three young boys and a young lady, what goes through my mind is what, is, what does the future hold for my, my grandbabies? Mm-hmm. 
And it starts with people like me, leaders that are in place. And what I found that these youth are asking for time. We give them stuff. They're not asking for stuff, the games, the, you know, the remotes. They're asking for time, which is why this camp, you know, the Boys to Men camp was so important for me. And this camp came about because I had the opportunity to walk the floors and speak to some of the inmates. You know, they always tell you that if you want to know the solution to the problem, go straight to the source itself. Mm-hmm. So I went to the inmates and I asked them, I was like, why are we on first name basis with you? Which, which means they are repeated offenders. They, you know, it's a revolving door for some of them. And, and, you know, and I asked others, why are you here? What could we have done different as a society to help mm-hmm. you or your family? And, you know, all of them came to the same thing. They was like, nobody showed any interest. Um, we didn't have, uh, some were saying they didn't have anywhere to, to um, reside, to lay their head. Mm-hmm. They were without food. And when you see how in society um, as a whole, a, a lot of that has taken a toll on these individuals, then you understand why they succumb to the pressures of the world, should I say, mm-hmm. and crime. And they turn to criminal activity. Let's just be fear, uh, clear about it yes. because of lack of other. Now, some will say, well, that's just an excuse, but it's also an explanation. And if you haven't lived in that Absolutely. experience, you know, as my Absolutely. daddy would say, then, you know, hush. <laughs> that's right. When you take away, you think about it, and I always use this analogy with um, my employees. You take away your food, your education, and somewhere to lay your head. What do you have? You have nothing. Some would listening might say, well, wraparound services, we always hear about that in schools. We know that communities offer services. Here is a sheriff's department offering these resources. How did all this come about? Well, once again, after talking to the inmates, and then I went back to my office, and I said, what is it that I can do? I know I'm the sheriff, and I don't, you know, you, you look at the negativity that has been displayed out in the community with the law enforcement, and I wanted to show the positive side and that I am the the community. I'm considered the community sheriff. And I believe in that. And I tell people my word is my bond. So I just went back to my office and and we had two weeks. We put a camp together in two weeks. And I said, what can we do? And I pulled my team together and I said, what about a boys to men camp? And we started thinking about the curriculum. And I said, well, the basics. Mm-hmm. You know, you first of all, we have to teach our young men to believe in themselves you know, to validate themselves, not get up in the morning and let society validate you and not let gangs validate you. Believe in yourself, know who you are and that you have the full potential to achieve anything that you want to do. But I also talked about my life story, how I came up and what I did and did not have. And I didn't use it as an excuse. I used it as a strengthener for me to be where I am to this day. But our youth is not as strong as we were back in that time. You know, we played outside. We we drunk out of the fire hose. You, you know, we we shared things and didn't have to worry about a pandemic. Um, so and social media and we didn't have social that. media. We didn't we didn't have these electronics. We didn't have remote controls. We had conversation. So I pulled all that together. And that's where I came up with. Let's teach them basic life skills that they do not have. Some of the young men in this camp never owned a suit, did not know how to tie a tie, didn't know how to put a suit together. And they were just the confidence that they gained just from putting on that suit was overwhelming. I imagine if you said you put it, put it together in two weeks, you had a lot of officers, a lot of people involved that wanted to participate, wanted to volunteer. I did not have to force my employees. Um, the, and, and, and let's be clear, the classes were taught by uniformed law enforcement 
officials from the DeKalb County Sheriff's Office along with civilian employees. I didn't have to force them. I put it out there to them, and they volunteered. We had one, and I have to mention his name, Deputy Jones, who actually worked from 3 till 11. He would get off at night, go home, get a couple of hours of sleep, be back at 7.30 in the morning, in the morning to make sure he meet those um, young men when they came in to start class at 8 a.m. He beat me there. And once he finished the camp at 4 p.m., he would change into his uniform and go back out and complete his shift. What does that say to you? Oh, that says that um, he cares. He cares. How did y'all get the, the young boys involved? How did you salute? You, you know what we did? I um, We sent out, we went through all social media, and we had them to write a paragraph, just one little paragraph. And I asked the parents, guardians, or whomever to allow them to write it, to allow the young men to write it themselves because we wanted to see the authentic side of Mm -hmm. them. And they just had to write a paragraph as to why they wanted to be a part of the Boys to Men camp with the captain. Oh my gosh, you would be surprised. I mean, it was very, it was kind of emotional for me to read some of the um, essays because some of the young men was like, my dad is dead. Um, Another one was, my dad is in prison. Um, I had one who, mom and dad, was deceased and was being reared by an aunt and uncle. And um, some was just like, I just want to know what it means to grow up to be a man. I, I, I want to know. Um, so it was just amazing. We had one young man who was actually um, the son to one of our judges, and she, she, just, she was overwhelmed. She said, a wonderful program. So it wasn't like these kids just they came from all walks of mm-hmm. life and background because young boys need that regardless of where you come from and what lifestyle you live. And to teach these young men, again, etiquettes, how to properly see the young lady. Um, how, I bet how that to, was interesting. Oh, it was very interesting. <laughs> and they loved it. They really loved it. And once again, after you read their, their essays, it let us know what type of class we had. If you just joined us, I'm in conversation with DeKalb County Sheriff Melanie Maddox, and we're talking about a program, the summer program, uh, teaching young boys not just only life skills but etiquette. Let's talk about that first class. Is, is there any young man, and you could mention his first name, that stands out to you? Well, we, we did have one, and we had little nicknames for some of them. They, you know, they come in, and, and they have the little nicknames, and um, we call one the, the Pancake. His name was Pancake and was the Why cutest little thing. Pancake? Because we had pancakes for breakfast, and he just <laughs> loved the pancakes. And so his nickname became Pancake, and we had another one that was named after our chief deputy. We called him Little Akies because my chief deputy is named Akies. Um but these kids were so, they, and when I say they were so amazing, because the good thing about it, our first class is over and the second class is over. But what we told the parents also is that we do follow-ups. Mm-hmm. These deputies have already gone out and have done a follow-up with the first class, and the kids were so surprised. And I received so many emails, overwhelming emails, text messages, because they said, you kept your word. And I often tell people, my word is my bond. That's all that I have. What does this mean or what does it say to, we hear all these reports, let's be clear, we we all read the paper, we watch the news, we know about the spike in violence, particularly in youth violence. There was a wonderful conversation this morning on 1A, a program that we carry here about mental health, youth violence, all of that. What does it say about a program that you put together in two weeks and the impact it's made just on a small number of youth and what that could do not just in this region, but nationwide, right. if we had more programs. Right. That it can be done. If I did it in two weeks, and it was a collaborative effort, if we all come together, um, you will hear me several times say, I'm not, this is not a one-man, one-woman show. 
I'm not going to try to be sheriff by myself. It takes a community. It's a community effort. It's an um, employee effort. And my employees came through um, and, and pulled this together, like I say, in two weeks. And it was amazing. So I, I'd say that we need to come together as one because, again, they're asking for time not stuff and this is what's going to bridge that gap between law enforcement and the community and it shows them that they can trust us because if they can't can't turn to law enforcement and and they already have a family they can't turn to then who can they turn to we have to give them an outlet and that's what we have done at the DeKalb County Sheriff's Office so now next summer you got to have more than one, one or two this isn't a budget, Sheriff? We're, we're, we're going we're to, well, let me say this. We're going to make sure that it is in the budget. This mm-hmm. is something that I have um, already promised to them that I will do again next year. We'll, we'll do two, but we'll probably try to up the numbers. Instead of 15, we're going to try to do 25 young men. I will have more deputies involved with it. And I must say, like I said, I have to thank the employees of the Sheriff's Office. They did an amazing, amazing job with pulling this, this together. And not having me to say, this is your job, you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, they all volunteered. We had more than enough volunteers. We had outside support from the 100 Black Men, Omega Psi, Phi, K, Psi, um, you name it. We just, we had very good support. Even restaurants donated um, food. the food for the kids for because we, we, we fed them breakfast and lunch. And they had journals, they had T-shirts. We, um, we taught them that life has rules. And if you don't obey those rules, there are consequences behind the rules. And they had to be there at 8 a.m. on time, not 8.01, not 8.02, 8 a.m. on time. And it was their responsibility to make sure that the parents or whoever was going to get them there to get them there on time. Did they get there on time? Absolutely. Absolutely. They were there at 7.30. A lot of them, and they had to make sure they had all their equipment. The things that we told them to bring, we looked at it as equipment. This is your job. You can't come to work without your equipment. So they had journals, their T-shirt. They had to wear a belt. Major Crosby told them if, if it has loops, it needs a belt. So they had to come in with a belt, mm-hmm. and they had to wear black tennis shoes. So there was uniform. We had one that tried to, on the first day, tried to give us a little kickback because he didn't want to spend any money on tennis shoes. This was a 16-year-old. Needless to say, he went to Walmart and got a pair of tennis shoes. You you have a choice. If you want this job and you want to keep this job, you're going to comply and you're going to wear the tennis shoes. Well, he went and and got his tennis shoes. What did you gain out of this, personally? Um, Oh, wow. I I, I gained a sense of um, reality. Mm -hmm. I gained a sense of reality. Because, you know, we see it from one side, but when you actually in the room with the youth and it, it gave me um, it gave my team, should I say, uh, more compassion to know how to treat those inmates with dignity and respect to show that if we give them that respect and give them what they're asking for, which is time, compassion, but most of all, love. And that doesn't mean you have to put your hands on them, but just to show them that you love them and discipline and structure. Um, it, that's 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 more than enough for me. That lets me know that my my work is well worth it. Me being the sheriff is well worth it. I wonder if other departments or law enforcement agencies, not only here in Georgia but around the nation, reach out and say, "Hey, can you give us this curriculum?" And you can say, "Yeah, it's going to cost you," but 
<laughs> I would love, you know what, actually, I put it out there it's on social media. I've seen people say everybody needs to have this. And, yeah. and, I, and I, I, I ask them, I, I tell them, you know, take it and run with it. You might be able to do something better with it, you know. But like I said, it was a two-week thing. But for it to be put together so rapid, it was great. And I want them to run with it because this is what's going to be needed. We as leaders are going to have to be out more in the community, especially in law enforcement and in uniform in order to bridge that gap and in order to um, bring that trust back to where it was in law enforcement. Nobody trusts us anymore. As we wrap up, I do want to focus on, because it's so important, when we talk about mental health oh, gosh, and, yes. and our youth. Yes. And did you notice that you see a transformation? And, or did any youth talk about some of those issues? And maybe they didn't even know how to explain it, but you knew where they were going. That was the purpose of them writing their own story, their paragraph, why they wanted to be a part of it. And actually we did. We had one young man who just... Um, we put we and we could we could see it, and I knew something was wrong. And we pulled him outside and had a conversation with him, and, and we were like, "What's going? On? You're doing good, you know." We we always speak posit- positivity into them, and this young man just said, "I'm tired of hiding my feelings," and he just broke down and started crying. And one of my employees, she gets really emotional. I say, no, you go to your office. You go to your office. We're going to take care of this. So what I did is I put him with one of my um, commanding officers, a male officer. And I said, this is somebody that you can trust, and I want you to have a conversation with them. So we saw the transformation from Monday when they came in. By the time that Wednesday came, you saw a 360 turn. So it, to me, that filled me up with a lot of emotions to, once again, to know that it is so worth it. And I thank God for allowing me to be able to be the leader in place to do such it's needed. This is not a want and a desire. Mm-hmm. It's a needed thing. What do you hear from parents and guardians and caregivers? Oh, the parents. I've received so many cards, thank you cards, um, emails, uh, you name it. I, I've gotten everything from the parents. I had a state patrol at my first graduation, and he says, Sheriff, I've gone to many graduations and camps, but I've never seen one like this before. And state patrol is very strict. And but for him to say that, that to me, um, that said something. But he said he has never seen a camp put together like that before. I had parents crying like they just could not stop crying. To this day, parents are saying, do you know he's still saying yes, ma'am? I said he better. (laughs) You you know, so it's still a yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. They are taught that they get up every morning and say, I am a king. And I look down, you know, at no one. I always hold my head up and stick my chest out, my shoulders broad. And that's what we speak into these youth. We speak life into them for them, once again, to validate themselves, to not wait on society to validate you. How do you explain or do you try to explain to yourself how all this came about? You went back to your office and all this just poured out. How much of what you experienced, your lived experience growing up, might have spurred some of this? It, it was it was a contributing factor as, as a, young, a young girl, you know, um, also having the negativity thrown at me growing up. Where'd you grow up? You know, I grew up here. I'm actually a, a Grady baby, originally right. from Atlanta, Georgia. Grew up um, in the Kirkwood area, uh, high school, um, Brown High School is on the west side. Morris graduate of great old Daryl Morris Brown College. Um, so I'm originally from here. So that's the good thing about it. I'm very authentic because I am an original homegrown. And it, that is to more means that much more to society, well, to DeKalb County as a whole, mm-hmm. because I live and breathe. I tell people I live and work and play in DeKalb County. And that's what I, I love to do. And 
it's very personal for me because my grandchildren are being reared, you know, as, as well in DeKalb County, the in DeKalb County schools. Um, my daughter is an educator, but for my life growing up, I took that and I used it as a platform and say, this is what I will not do. And this is what I see. I knew what I needed then. Mm-hmm. I didn't get it. So I want to make sure that these youth got what I did not get. And all it was was just compassion, understanding, love, and communication. And they got all of that and then some. DeKalb County Sheriff Melanie Maddox, thank you so much for taking the time talking about a program. The first ever Boys to Men Summer Camp. Yes. Now, we got to work on for our young ladies too, right? Yeah, I've gotten emails in reference to that as well. <laughs> That's a whole different ballgame. Let me know. I'm there. We, we, we can get it together. Yes, we can. We can. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yes. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. It was welcome news for so many Georgians. The process to allow the use of medical marijuana has come a long way. This past Saturday, the Georgia Access to Medical Cannabis Commission announced six licenses have been awarded to private companies. Well, why? Well, to manufacture low THC cannabis for medical use. Now, the commission had a lot of applicants. I believe it was 69. We'll get to that in a moment. But here's a question also. How long will it take for Georgia to benefit? This is just the first phase. How do we get to this point? Joining me now with more information is the commission chair, Dr. Christopher Edwards. Welcome back to the program. Pleasure to be back, Rose. And, of course, when you call, I will answer your call. So (laughs) happy to be Happy to be back. I appreciate that. Usually we're talking about maybe some housing issues, but today we're going to switch gears. Um, Before we get into this latest news, I think for a lot of people, let's talk about the role of the commission since this was initially created a few years back. And when commission members were appointed, I believe, in in 2019, what have you all been doing, Sister? What were you all tasked with exactly? Yeah, this is a soup soup to nuts uh, program. I mean, a really heavy lift because, uh, of course, this hadn't been done in the state of Georgia before. So there was no template by which we could follow. And uh, this type of commission being uh, newly created, most of them consisted of medical professionals. Mm -hmm. We did have uh, Chief Bob Starrett, who uh, represented uh, sheriffs uh, and sheriff's associations across Georgia and their interests, as well as uh, some uh, uh, technical expertise. But the fact is that most of our our commission members are within the medical community, and that is the focus of this particular program. That's healthcare as it relates to treating patients. And just the, the, we've gone from conversations about, you know, medical marijuana and to now, and it took Georgia a a while to to get there. Um, But for folks who may be wondering, you know, as medical professionals on this commission, did you all do any extra research or work in making sure that you all, before you got into the process of accepting bids, that these companies knew exactly what you all wanted from a medical standpoint, too, in terms of how it's cultivated, how it's processed, all of that? How much research and education did you all have to do? Well, we had to bring ourselves up for sure. Uh, Obviously, as medical doctors, and we are all still practicing, we are aware of what our colleagues have been doing in uh, other states. 
We all followed the literature to talk about some of the things that are very effective, not only in this country, but uh, uh, in Israel. They led one of the largest research projects there there was on the effectiveness of treating patients with low-dose uh, THC oil. Mm-hmm. So we did have to come up, and uh, doctors are used to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we learn pretty quickly. And we kind of scale up and then translate that into, hey, this is what we're trying to get accomplished here. These are our goals. Here are the patients. Here are our needs. And the fact of the matter is uh, there was a way for patients to become licensed, if you were, to receive this medicine. But it was illegal for them to get it within Mm -hmm. the state of Georgia or bring it across state lines. So this is something that needed to happen uh, in order to be able to effectively treat these patients who are in great need. You are a physician. Uh, how much, what were you educated? What stood out to you that maybe you didn't know throughout this process about, uh, you know, medical marijuana and its, its uses and what it can be used for? How great the need was. Mm-hmm. I appreciated some of the things, but unless you actually see the patients, and for some family members who have been working for this, on this for years to try to get the legislature to pass it, uh, they would come to our meetings. From our launch meeting at Morehouse School of Medicine, we always put families first. And if you could see some of the children that would come up, mm-hmm. and then you would learn about some of the challenges that families have. Just imagine a child with a seizure disorder where they're constantly seizing. There's no break, no rest, no nothing good about that. And the only effective treatment has been uh, low-dose THC oil. And it actually gave the child relief and stopped some of those seizures. It helped not only the child, but the family itself. So you, yeah. you got to look at those those things. Those are the ones that really uh, struck us as we have to get this done. And families actually came down to the state capitol. I remember when all of this was being legislated, uh, families came down, they, they testified, they spoke to lawmakers about the importance of this. Did you all, Dr. Edwards, did you all have, did you give yourself a timeline in terms of when you all were first put together and then, Say, okay, we want to be able to get to this phase and then the next phase and in this phase of being able to put out, you know, RFPs or applications. Did you all give yourself a timeline? Are you on, on, on track right now, so to speak? Uh, well, let's just say we're not as quick as I wanted it to be. Um, really? Our, our goal as the commission was, hey, we're going to do this fast. Surgeons in particular, we are about the problems in front of us. Let's solve the problem. No dilly-dallying around. Let's just get to it and solve it. Uh, So in some other states, it would take them years from the time that they actually formed their commission till it was actually done. Now, that's something that this commission just was not going to have happen. Mm -hmm. So we were moving pretty rapidly at a pretty good clip and thought we could get it done uh, within uh, a short period of time. And, of course, then COVID hit. Mm. That uh, slowed us down some, but I I have to give credit to our commission. We did not let that slow us down much, and we kept pushing through. So 
if you look at us and benchmark us against other states, mm-hmm. I think we've beat other states by uh, six, seven, eight months uh, in uh, getting this uh, process to where it is now uh, than they have. So I would congratulate our commissioners for continuing to work in and it took a heck of a lot of work. And Dr. Edwards, when you consider, I believe I read this from you all in the press release, that there are about 14,000 registered patients who are residents of Georgia, uh, many with debilitating and incurable, as you call, incurable conditions. And now you all were able to, I think back in February, you all were said, okay, nearly 70 businesses submitted, which you all considered competitive application proposals. Um, 70, and out of 70, six. Yeah. <laughs> no. That's I, hard. It was hard. <laughs> That's hard. And I don't mean to make light of it, but I mean, I was wondering if someone like you got a, a case of Chardonnay in the mail from a company said, hey, we're just saying hello. Could you um, can you what can you share about what you all were looking for um, just well, in, in, in licensing these six? Yeah, we we can't share about anything regarding the process. Sure. Right. Because we're still in it. Mm-hmm. There and there's an appeal and there is another process for folks to sort of oppose, I guess that's the right word, of the six that y'all chose, right? Uh, yeah, you know, every state that's gone through this, uh, there are going to be some losers, and uh, those losers have investments. Don't, don't call them losers. Uh, Is there another word? Well, we not use? winners. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they weren't. They weren't selected. Getting the yeah. license. There you let, go. Let, let's just say that. Then. Yeah, that's a better way to put it. Yeah, don't call. Yeah, I shouldn't use that word. That's that's great. See, that's why I call you. You, you help me out here. I'm I'm not a TV radio sort of guy. But um, uh, those folks will obviously be disappointed. Well, they have the ability to then go through a protest process, which is well known uh-huh. and is public knowledge. And uh, I'm sure that they're likely to be somebody. I hope there isn't, because. Uh, at, the end of the day, I don't want to slow down getting the medicine to the family. That was my next question. Where will this this process? Will it put you all behind some some more months? I know you want to be fair because you have this, as you call it, protest phase. But is it going to take six more six more months? You know, what's this? What's the process going to be here? Well, you know, I, I as far as what is public information, mm-hmm. and that is nine days from. Uh, our selection or recommendations of intent, they have the ability to come in and go through their uh, protest process, and we'll see who does or who doesn't. Mm-hmm. That's not going to take us away from our focus of moving forward and continuing to um, encourage uh, and push those who uh, have been uh, selected, unless there is some change that comes out of the protest, mm-hmm. to go more quickly to deliver the uh, much-needed medicine to those folks who need it. So the law says, which was passed by the legislature, mm-hmm. they have up until a year after signing the contract. Well, I think it's in their interest, and it's certainly in the patient's interest to do it more quickly mm-hmm. than that, and I think uh, that that's going to be achieved. That's just my gut feeling, uh, and as chair, that's certainly what we will be encouraging. And, Dr. Edwards, is this process similar to what other states have had to go through as well, just in terms of the different phases? Yes. 
we have learned from other states, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we tried to do was take um, pieces and knowledge and things that they had done well and then uh, mistakes that other states may have made. And we came up with a process that we think best fit Georgia and for Georgia patients. Now, remember, it's 14, 15, 16,000 patients who are registered. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine if you were registered and you still didn't have a legal way to get it, mm-hmm. then these folks likely have been having to go across state lines to illegally take care of their family members. Mm-hmm. We want to correct that, and I think that uh, this process and this legislation that came out of uh, the state does that, and this commission is going to make sure it gets implemented. And, Dr. Edwards, as a medical, as a physician here, I want to get your thoughts on, because I know for a while there was back and forth over what conditions would be approved, what would be on the list. Is it, through, through your lens, separated from being on the commission, which I don't know if you can, but mm-hmm. as a physician, do you think there's there are conditions that are should be on the list that are that are not or should at least be researched and discussed? Yeah, our, our goal is first we if you look at the list it, it it hits some grand slam home runs as to this is a no brainer needs to be on the list mm-hmm. and the seizure disorders as I discussed before mm-hmm. Lou Gehrig's disease people mm-hmm. would be familiar with Lou Gehrig. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, things of that sort, Crohn's disease that are debilitating, end-stage cancer. Mm. Just imagine the pain and suffering that people have or end-stage or end-of-life processes as it relates to AIDS uh, and uh, HIV. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are just a few of the names. There are about uh, uh, 20 Mm -hmm. that are on uh, the list. Um, what we're doing and looking to strive for as we um, have our further commission meetings is work with the medical community. Medical community. Mm-hmm. Uh, that includes the uh, uh, Georgia State Medical Association as well as the Atlanta and Georgia-based medical associations, uh, hospitals, pharmacists. Everybody's included. But the first people you talk to should be and always should be first are the patients. Mm-hmm. Listen to them first and then go and talk to those who treat them. And at that point, we can start delving through, okay, what really should fit into a category like this? And then make the recommendations. It's up to the legislatures mm-hmm. to approve it or not approve it, uh, but those recommendations will come from the commission. I was going to say, you all carry some weight here, and I noticed. Um, I believe PTSD, uh, as they say, directly in terms of direct exposure or witnessing of trauma. Um, and some folks uh, who might say, well, you know, PTSD, let's talk about that. Because when we talk about mental health and mental conditions, then someone will say, well, there could be a lot uh, that could fall under that. Do you think that could possibly change as relates yeah, to those? I think, yeah. I think that you and I have the same takeaway, and so do our commission members. We're going to be very judicious and reasonable when looking at what does that truly mean and then make those recommendations. Hmm. Somebody hits their finger with a hammer, putting in a nail, and says, oh, I have chronic pain and I need this medicine. Well, I don't think so. Hmm. Um, That's not going to qualify, uh, in my view. Um, 
But if they have end-stage metastatic cancer, where you are given a choice of being on morphine and you're not even able to engage with your family at the end of your life, or this medicine can help you uh, while you still engage with your family at the end of your life, then that's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. We're gonna we're we're gonna we're gonna pass that. We're gonna go with that. So I, I hear what you're saying, but again, physicians are really common sense, practical sort of folks for the most part. Uh, and I think we're gonna make those types of recommendations that are common sense. Well, speaking of recommendations and common sense, listen, we are still in this pandemic. Um, when you, whether it's talking about this in terms of medical marijuana or where we are with COVID nineteen, but I've asked folks like you, what lessons are coming out of all of this as it relates to our nation's overall public health policies, healthcare in general? What's been your takeaway through all of this, Doctor Edwards? Stop politicizing it. Healthcare is not a political football. You really do need to just educate the American people. Educate them. We're pretty smart people, and I don't care if you're in North Georgia or South Georgia, which, of course, I'm from South Georgia or Southwest Mm -hmm. Georgia, or in Atlanta. If you just give us the information, the problem is that too many people have come on and start coloring in their own narratives and their own, let people make a choice. I think it's a patient's right to choose. Mm -hmm. But generally, if you give them the correct information outside of political influences, the patient generally makes the right choice. So uh, that's the biggest lesson I have walked away with in talking with my patients. And there are a lot of them who were rightfully, in their mind, afraid of taking this vaccine. Mm -hmm. Um, And after I sit down with them and go through it step by step by step, and I acknowledge Tuskegee. Mm -hmm. uh, The last person that was enrolled in the Tuskegee experiment, people think it was a long time ago. It wasn't. It was in 1973. Mm -hmm. So I acknowledge their fears about whether government can be good or bad. Take all that away and let's look at the science and what will save your life and your children's lives and give you a better quality health care. And generally, American people, in my view, or at least my patients, mm-hmm. they, they make the right decision. Dr. Christopher Edwards, he's a commission chair of the Georgia Access to Medical Cannabis Commission, giving us the latest as Georgia There's a process, folks, so we're going to stay on it. Dr. Edwards, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I'm glad that you chose this outlet to speak to. I, I heard I heard that you didn't want to talk to many people. <laughs> I didn't talk to anybody else. Uh, no gotcha game, none of that stuff. But you educate patients, Rose, and that's why I said I would, I would talk to you. I appreciate that. Our listeners appreciate that. Thank you so All much, right. Dr. Edwards. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well is in our podcast. Subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Community conversations that matter. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 